You're listening to So Much Pingle, the podcast about herpetology, field herping, and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles. Join us each week as Mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet. And now, bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone, here's your host, Mike Pingleton. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. And I'm very happy to be talking with you all again, and I hope everyone remains safe and healthy. And we just had a week of unseasonably cool weather here in the Great Corn Desert, and it's been great to have the house open and the AC off. I mean, air conditioning, of course. If I say AC, a segment of people listening, immediately think of artificial cover, and they break out Google Earth and start looking for trash piles and board lines. I mean, I'm kidding. Sort of. So here we go with episode 12. That's an even dozen, cousin. And on today's show, we'll be talking with Dr. Emily Taylor. Now, I keep track of the podcast using one of those leather-covered journals that you can get from Barnes & Noble and other places, and they're, they're pretty cool. I use them all the time. And I have an ask list in my podcast journal, and Dr. Taylor has been on it from the get-go. I follow her on social media, and by the way, her cartoon image in the show notes is actually her Twitter avatar, which was rendered by Ethan Kosak, the artist who also did my caricature for this podcast. So in her role as a professor of biological sciences at Cal Poly, Dr. Taylor is involved with some cool projects, including some with rattlesnakes, and she's been studying them for several decades now. And folks, we are far from being done talking about rattlesnakes on this show. Now, about an hour before my chat with Emily, I ran across an article she wrote for Medium.com entitled Squirrel vs. Rattlesnake, which was just published on August 3rd. And I didn't have any time to read it before the show, and I was kicking myself for missing out on a potential topic for discussion. But as it turns out, we touched on some of the points in the article. But after the show, I sat down with it, and it's wonderful. I mean, you think you know stuff, but I learned some fascinating aspects of the ongoing rumble between buzztails and flufftails. And here's a hint, it's much less one-sided than you might think. Near the end of the article, there's a great quote which is indented and is in a larger font. And it speaks eloquently to one of my long-held philosophies about venomous snakes and other unloved creatures. And it's obviously shared by Dr. Taylor and, of course, many of you. And now that's all you're going to get from me, so go read the article after the show. And the link is in the show notes at somuchpingle.com. And now let's hear from Emily Taylor. Hi, everyone. I'm talking with Emily Taylor today. Welcome to the show, Emily. Hello. I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm happy to have you. I've been kind of interested in getting you to come on the show and talk. I have what's called an ask list, and I have all these names written down and uh, slowly going through them and talking to people. And uh, you were on my list. And then I had a number of people say, how come you don't have Emily Taylor on there? She would be great. And uh, so here you are. Super excited. No pressure there, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So uh, to start off, I want to ask you, 
a little bit about yourself. Maybe you can give us uh, a little bit of your, uh, let's start with your professional background. I know you're, you're a professor of biological sciences, but can you tell us a little more about that? Sure thing. I uh, got my bachelor's degree in English, interestingly. And oh, wow. while I, yeah, while I was at Berkeley, I met Harry Green um, in a science class and decided to not change my major, but to change my future. And I ended up going and getting my PhD in biology at Arizona State studying rattlesnakes, and then uh, came to Cal Poly about 15 years ago, where I'm now a professor of biological sciences, and I do research on lizards and snakes. Awesome. The Harry Green connection, that's pretty cool, too. Harry Green um, seems to have some sort of inspirational connection with a lot of herpetologists. Yeah, and, and of course, t- he gave a talk at the uh, Brookfield Zoo when his uh, Snakes Evolution of Mystery in Nature book came out, the big great coffee table book out came out and I drove up there with a couple of buddies of mine. I brought my copy and it's a couple hour drive for me. We went up there and uh, sat in a room uh, with a bunch of people who were probably zoo donors and really didn't care much for rattlesnakes, but they showed up and he gave this great talk about black tail rattlesnakes and some stuff out of the book. And it was just great. And I got a sign, I got his autograph in the book and and uh, just flipping through that book is what uh, really got me to consider that international travel was something I needed to do because I needed to go to other continents and see some of these really cool snakes. So that, that book was a huge influence on me. And I that agree story, with you entirely. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I remember, I actually remember it came out in 97 and I took it with me to Guatemala. Like it was my first international trip first herping. And I had this big hardcover book that I was like desperately trying to keep it from getting ruined by the rainforest, but it was inspiring (laughs) me to go out and look for critters. It was awesome. Yeah. So your story and my story have been written over and over many times by so many people. So it's true. He's really an inspiration for people from across the herpetology community, I think. Yeah. And one of these days I want to get him on this show. Yes, I think you should. I think that you can. He's the kindest, most generous person. He would probably do it for sure. Yeah. Well, he's on my ask list, so we'll we'll get there eventually. So you're at uh, Cal Poly and you're, are you actively engaged in, in research there? Are you teaching? Do you research? You have a lab? What's going on there? Tell me more about that. Yes, all of the above. So I'm a professor of biology there, and I have graduate students. I have undergraduate researchers. We do lots of research on lizards and snakes. We'd be glad to discuss those studies with you. I also teach herpetology every spring, and I teach a herpetology um, course for, for you know, a non-college course at the um, Southwestern Research Station in the Chiricahua Mountains every summer as well. Oh, in addition, cool. I teach physiology courses at Cal Poly and intro bio and, you know, across the board. So lots of teaching and research is my main job, I, I would say. Cool. All the things. Uh, and I did sneak a peek at uh, Google Scholar. Just I knew you'd produced a number of papers, but uh, Google Scholar gave me this great list of I'm looking at it right now, all these great uh research publications. Uh, it seems like rattlesnakes are at the forefront of that. You want to talk about that a little bit? or? Absolutely. Rattlesnakes, I think they hooked me into herpetology at first because just like it happens for a lot of people, they're just so dang cool. And then as I started to become interested in physiology, I realized that they were an ideal model organism too for being able to do research on animals in the wild. So I always tell people to try to come up with another animal that you could study in a, in a natural setting. So not in the laboratory, but actually natural setting um, and that you could 
reasonably catch when you needed to to get things like blood samples, be able to actually observe it to get behavioral data, uh-huh. um, meaning that you need a if it's going to be a snake, you need this animal to be above ground a lot. And because they're ambush foragers, they're above ground and they're accessible a lot compared to a lot of other large bodied snakes like gopher snakes. So they've really turned into this excellent model organism. We've been able to study so many different questions in physiology, things from um, everything from thermal ecology to reproductive physiology and their hormones and behavior. And it just depends on my students' interests, what we're doing at the time. So most recently in my lab, we did an in-depth thermal ecology study that was led by my graduate student, Haley Crowell, who's now doing her PhD at University of Michigan. And she did a study where she looked at how rattlesnakes, this is Northern Pacific rattlesnakes, our local rattlesnake here, um, how their thermal ecology differs among four different populations. So one's on the coast where it's pretty mild, one's that are inland where it's pretty hot. And she went a step further to translate their body temperature data into what their metabolic rates would be through the course of the year. And then she modeled what, how much food they would need to eat and was able to show that really no matter where you are on the central coast here, these rattlesnakes can get by with only about one ground squirrel a year, which is, really shows how efficient they are. That's pretty um, at, amazing. I know. They're just such cool animals. So that was a recent study. Right now, I just am involved with um, the first research project that my my group has done with some of my colleagues in Colorado at a high elevation prairie rattlesnake den. And this was an excellent opportunity because some people might know that looking for rattlesnakes really can be an art. It can be really difficult to find sometimes rattlesnakes. Um, that's part of the fun of it going herping yes. for certain types of rattlesnakes. Well, in the case of, of research, sometimes you do need to get your hands on a lot of rattlesnakes, right? And over the years, I've studied Western Diamondbacks, Northern Pacifics, places where I can get what I thought were lots of rattlesnakes. Okay, it was nothing like this. This high elevation den at 8,000 feet, we marked with pit tags 375 prairie rattlesnakes out of the same den this May. Holy cow. It was unbelievable. And we were able to select... 20 female rattlesnakes, 10 of them were pregnant, 10 of them weren't. And we put radio transmitters in them, temperature data loggers. We also put snake models throughout the environment that are logging the temperatures, showing what's available. And so we're doing this in-depth thermal ecology study on those prairie rattlesnakes, and they only have like a three-month active season. So it's going to be really interesting to see how they make a living energetically in just that three months. So, so three, 375 rattlesnakes. And, and how many of those did you... So you processed a number of them for your study, but did you... You obviously had to count them, so you you processed the whole lot. Is that correct? We processed the whole lot. My colleagues were there for about a month, and I was only there for about a week. So they did the bulk of the duty uh, of the duties. Um, this was uh, Scott Boback, Bob Reed, Scott Getz, and an undergrad named Jack Henry. And they we marked, pit tagged, and injected the rattles with paint of 375 individuals. And there was. Many more that we missed that got away from us. So this is a massive den. How long did that take? Well, there was some inclement weather because it was in late May, early June, which at 8,000 feet in Colorado, there was actually snow on some days. So some of the days, I would say they were there about a month, but some of the days there was no snakes out and some days they um, didn't go up there. So I I can't say exactly, but it was over the course of a month, there was probably maybe... um, maybe 10 or 15 field days that they went out there and caught all these snakes. Yeah, there was a day that we went up there and we caught, I think, maybe 45 snakes just all at once. It was incredible. You're really limited by your ability to catch them and by your bucket space more than the number of snakes that are there. Now, this (laughs) I know um, because I've helped with some rattlesnake surveys. 
and I helped with one in Pennsylvania last year, and that was kind of how things went. It was like, well, boy, there's a lot of these snakes out. How many? How many can we get? There were over forty, but I think we ended up processing, catching, and processing two dozen, twenty-seven. I think it was. Right. And yeah. uh, that that took a while, you know, because we exactly. swabbed for uh, we swabbed for uh, SFD. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did uh, they did pit tagging and. Um, uh, scale clip for DNA, I think it was. And we took, uh, we did whale fluke photography, you know, you overhead shot of everyone. So just to, mm-hmm. to identify their pattern. And that took, that took hours. So when oh, you're yeah. talking about 375, I'm like, hmm, man, that's, they were that's long a lot days. of work. They were long yeah. days. It was, it was, I'm, I'm, I'm an early bird. So it was really difficult for me to get in the schedule with these guys. Basically they slept in and then because it was, the snakes aren't out in the early morning and then we would go up the hill. We would just madly catch as many snakes as we could while still doing it safely, which is, you know, we're on, you're on a precipice on the side of a hill with just surrounded by rattlesnakes. So safety first. And then we would come back, eat lunch and just spend the whole afternoon and evening processing snakes up until the wee hours of the morning. And it was really you couldn't drink beer or anything because it's <laughs> rattlesnakes. So it was just the most wholesome trip ever. <laughs> I don't know why beer is such a common theme in these interviews. But <laughs> herpetologists, herpetologists love beer. I mean, they there's do. just no way around it. We just um, love a, a, a cold one after a long day in the field. But when you're processing rattlesnakes all night, you just yeah. can't do it. Uh, no, no, no. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. Well, that's that's very interesting. And so you expect results from this by fall you'll have some some data yeah by fall we'll have some preliminary data we will have some good uh, body temperature data from the pregnant versus non-pregnant female snakes and also some you know temperature availability in the field what we'll have to wait for for next year is to go back and try to get some data on what their preferred body temperatures are so that we can do some of the classic thermal ecology um, measurements like how well they're thermoregulating, uh, the thermal quality of the environment, and be able to maybe make some projections of what was going to happen with climate change with these animals. These oh, animals are really yeah. living at the fringe, um, but we think that in a, in a population like this that's at high elevation, really limited in their active season, that they're very likely going to be able to expand their active season. They're probably going to be active a little bit earlier in the spring, mm-hmm. stay active a little bit later in the fall. Uh, we're starting to see those kind of data popping up here and there, sometimes anecdotal, sometimes scientifically that the irony seems to be that rattlesnakes may actually do really well in response to climate change because of having a longer active season, yeah, earlier well, th- births. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thinking of this, my brain's cranking right now. It's like, well, if you add five extra active days on the season, that's five what I would call opportunity days, opportunities to mate, opportunities to secure food. So it... it I see where you're going with this. So, Exactly. And right now we're still at the early stages of just saying if everything else stayed the same, which I'm sure it won't, but if everything else stayed the same, this is what we project will happen with rattlesnakes. And our models show that they would gain more weight, that they would be able to potentially reproduce more often, maybe have more babies. Um, However, that does imply that, you know, rodent populations are going to be staying solid, that um, that there's no going to, not going to be any other major changes, which is very unlikely. So I think that will be interesting to see how it plays out as we get more and more data into these models, start studying more and more extreme populations to see how that might differ from something like, you know, a Western diamondback rattlesnake, which can be active much of the year, for example, mm-hmm. in Arizona. Well, it the rattlesnake rodent pas de deux, <laughs> the little dance they've done for millennia, it's just fascinating, you know. The the uh, the rattlesnakes develop 
their their venom changes and the the rodents their ability to uh, survive the venom or become uh, tolerant of it changes and there's all these probably all these other ecological things I'm not thinking of but I'm sure the rodents will adapt as well I'm kind of sure of it as long as the system stays intact but maybe you know better than I do on that but that reminds that area, me too yeah. by the way uh, I, I just saw this morning uh, a post uh, in Facebook uh, from you and other people are posting it too about this article you wrote called Squirrel <laughs> versus Rattlesnake and I didn't get a chance to read it before we talked and I'm like, oh, gosh, darn it, I, that would be something to talk about. So I look forward to reading that. And uh, that's something I'm going to make sure we put in the show notes so that folks can find that and and have a look at that. So yeah, anyway. definitely, definitely, because it, it just summarizes a lot of the uh, information you just brought up about co-evolution of squirrels and rattlesnakes. But mainly what it's getting at is why people, many people, of course, probably not your listeners, but many people in the public don't like rattlesnakes, whereas they do like squirrels. And I try to level the playing field a little bit and show them why they're both worthy of our adoration, perhaps, or at least <laughs> at, at least our respect. Yes. I see a lot of people using the tick angle um, to boost the popularity of rattlesnakes and other snakes. Oh, well, you, you don't like ticks. Well, rattlesnakes eat 5,000 ticks a season by eating <laughs> rodents. And I, I'm not sure... I don't, I don't know what the data is on that, but it, it sounds like an interesting argument to me. You know, I'm very interested in whether how efficacious these strategies that we use are in terms of rattlesnake public image, rattlesnake public relations. All of us have different strategies that we use to try to convince people to, you know, to not kill rattlesnakes or to stay away from them or to even grow to respect and like them. And um, I just recently on my blog wrote a primer on for, for herpetologists on how to convince people that rattlesnakes are important. And I thought a lot about these, and there's not really much data out there on what works. There's a lot of um, qualitative information that I have learned from my colleagues at Advocates for Snake Preservation, which is that these arguments about ecosystem services, things that like, oh, okay, they keep rodents in control, and maybe even the tick thing, they keep ticks, which carry diseases in control, that those may not actually be as effective as we think they are. And that when it comes to your average person who doesn't really know much about rattlesnakes and is a little bit scared of them, that it turns out that what seems to be more effective is explaining to them that rattlesnakes are these long-lived sentient beings that have live babies and the mothers take care of the babies, that they have friends and families, and really making the people hear that. And especially if they can see a rattlesnake while they're hearing it in an outreach event and see that that rattlesnake is not trying to, you know, come after them and bite them. Those types of things apparently work a little bit better. And so I would love it if some student wanted to to do an actual study where they tried to test hypotheses about the different angles to see to which ones actually work on people in the public. I think that would be a great project. Know any sociologists? That sounds like a great little project. It does sound like a great project. I would love to collaborate (laughs) if anyone hears this and wants to do it. I have some ideas about how to do it. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Uh, My my personal take on it is nobody needs to have the worth of an elephant or a lion or a polar bear, all of which will either stomp on you or tear out your throat. Nobody needs the worth of those animals explained to them much. Everybody kind of gets those animals. And the idea that we have to prove over and over and over again to the nth degree that rattlesnakes are important. We make pharmaceuticals from their venom and we, you know, uh, whatever else it is that people like to say. In my mind, it you know, an animal just by existing should have 
equal worth, you know. Um, it, I love it. I love it. So, so you, you you haven't read my article, but you basically have because that's what I say is that I say in, in the long run, ground squirrels and rattlesnakes don't need our approval <laughs> to exist. Yeah. Just leave them alone and watch them and admire them from afar. Yeah. But they don't care <laughs> that you're afraid of them or you don't like them or you don't care. But it's really important. So. I mean, I think that you're right. I think that that this has been something that advocates for snake preservation has been saying for a long time, that rattlesnakes have a bad public image. And a lot of these other animals, like squid, for example, they have people who have been very successful in tweaking the public's opinion of them. And yeah. to what extent can we as advocates for rattlesnakes do that? And I've, especially during this period of isolation when I've had a little bit more time on my hands, I've become a little bit obsessive about trying to figure out ways that we can do that, which is why what led to that article, which is why we're talking about this right now today. I feel like it's my job and my responsibility to, to do that. And beyond my research, it's my responsibility to try to improve the situation for rattlesnakes and reduce conflict between people and rattlesnakes. Yeah. So now I really want to read this article. <laughs> um, yeah. And on a related note, in the field herping world where people go out and look for rattlesnakes as a recreational activity just to take their picture and and see them. And uh, many people enjoy doing that. The idea that, uh, I mean, for me, if if I see a rattlesnake and I can take its picture and it, it doesn't see me or if it sees me and it doesn't move and I stay a respectable distance away, I get a nice picture and the animal is left uh, basically unharmed. I don't think really it's it's much stress, but, but the idea that you have to, you know, get an animal, get it on a hook and pose it and all that. I, I know there's some stress involved in that, but, um, uh, you know, there are people that claim that it's, you know, just another day in a rattlesnake's life. But uh, I think maybe you've done some research on on this aspect of uh, of handling rattlesnakes and relocating rattlesnakes. Maybe you can talk about that a little bit. Yeah, certainly. So we haven't quantified the stress response to in response to photographers, which I know very well was that you're talking about. But I would guess it would be really similar to the typical stress response that you see in rattlesnakes in response to being briefly captured and manipulated. We have done a lot of research on that over the years, and we specifically have looked at the stress response in terms of their hormonal response. So most vertebrate animals, when when they are stressed out, including humans, they release uh, glucocorticoid hormones. So cort is the name for this major hormone. And that hormone is actually important in the short term because it helps the animal deal with the stressor, right? It mobilizes energy reserves. It, it's adaptive. But if that is elevated in the long term, it can be immunosuppressive. It can be really problematic. So same sort of thing with us. When Mm-hmm. burns calories too, right? Exactly. Yeah. Because it increases your metabolic rate and causes you to liberate your energy reserves. Um, but in the, and interestingly, chronic stress can, in humans can cause kind of, can cause weight gain around the midriff, but not around the rest of your body. But that's, that's in humans. Anyway, the point is with rattlesnakes that it's really similar that a short-term stress response is, you know, probably happens to them occasionally if they are, are having run-ins with predators, but long-term is no good. And so in my personal opinion, Messing with a snake in a in a respectful, gentle way for a short period of time for a photo is not going to be costing the snake its life. It's going to be a short-term stress response that they're adapted to. However, doing something where you may be really negatively impacting it for a long period of time is could be problematic. And so how that relates to things like relocation is that, as you know, there I heard your um, previous interview with Brian Hughes about relocation. 
It's a complicated topic. Uh, people have looked at it from many points of view. First and foremost, survival of the rattlesnakes. And there was a suggestion early on, which seems to be supported in many studies, that long-distance translocated rattlesnakes may not show good survival. And that was a lot of work done by Erica Novak and other people. And we were curious in my lab about short-distance translocation because everyone says, oh, well, let's do short-distance translocation as a way of of mitigating a nuisance rattlesnake in someone's yard, but also not subjecting it to this long distance death sentence that everyone talks about. And so long story short is that we did a study where we repeatedly short distance translocated Northern Pacific rattlesnakes. So it was once a week for seven weeks in a row. And we showed that they they had the short-term stress response every time we captured them, but that did not translate into any long-term chronic stress. So moving a snake a short distance, you know, once a week, like sometimes you hear at the Sonoran Desert Museum, they have rattlesnakes that just keep coming back and they keep moving them away. It seems to be fine. It seems to be okay in terms of the snake's survival. Um, Interesting. Also, yeah. We also did some work with the long-distance translocation and it was a short-term study, so just for a few months. And we showed that that does appear to raise their stress hormones to a certain degree. So there is that to consider that there may be this few months, at least chronic stress from long distance translocation, but they all survived. The outcome was okay, at least in the short term. So again, we weren't setting them long term like some of the other data show. I will say that in my opinion, the question of long distance translocation is more complicated than what we see in the literature. And just let me briefly explain that because this is really important for people like Brian Hughes and other people who are doing these translocations. Of course, short distance translocation is the best, but we can't always do it. Sometimes there's just a situation where it's all private land around or you're in a city center and you really can't do it. I've heard people go so far as to say, well, you shouldn't long distance translocate that snake because it's a death sentence. You should just put it into a museum collection. Well, while putting it into a museum collection is a good idea, I actually think that in some cases, those snakes are going to do just fine. And the reason I say that is that over the years at conferences, I've seen so many students giving presentations, like poster presentations, on their preliminary data on long-distance translocation, showing that the snakes did fine. The snakes long-distance translocated for even a year or more were perfectly healthy, were gaining weight, were reproducing. But unfortunately, those papers, for whatever reason, never get published. And I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's just because... It was a student paper and they never finished it, or if it was because it was negative data and it wasn't accepted. But I'm trying to say that I think there's a lot more nuance in long distance translocation. I think it depends on factors that we haven't yet identified, like the landscape, like the weather, like the individual types of snakes. So just to jump to the conclusion that it's always a death sentence is a little bit tenuous. And I think that what we should do as wildlife rescue professionals is to always try to relocate it short distance if possible. But when we absolutely can't, and in rare circumstances, we should try to do the long distance translocation because I think it can work. And again, would, would be very excited to see more focused research on that in the future as well. I see. Well, it's a shame there's no way to sort of put out a net and, and gather a lot of that data that that's, seems to have gone by the wayside here. I know. I really wish that we could get some of those data. Um, I do know that Brian Hughes is, is collecting data on some of these animals because he posts about it online qualitatively sometimes. And so I think over the long term, if he has enough data, that would be really interesting because he's in a place where this is a real serious question. In Phoenix and Tucson, long distance translocation may occasionally be something that's really necessary. Whereas where I live, when I do translocations, I never have to do long distance because I have so much empty public land everywhere I go. I can always do short distance translocations. So I don't have to worry about this. But in other other situations, you just have to do it. That's no way around it. Right. Uh, and I, I think that's the case sometimes with what Brian does down there. 
and I know Brian uh, is willing to make his data available. Um, yeah. I mean, to anyone I, who wants yeah, to use Yeah, he's doing it. this research. I mean, he's he's doing it already. I don't. He doesn't need help from someone like me. But um, no. he's doing a great he's doing a great job with what with um, you know managing rattlesnake human interactions in the in the valley and in Tucson. I just really respect the the things that he's been doing. Yeah, me too. You know, I mean, the snakes get put somewhere where they have a really good chance yeah. to make it. They don't yep. they're like like he I think he said something about, you know, the fireman would just flip it over the fence, you know, or, or you know, go up to the, the nearest foothill and you know drop right. it off there. And they uh, do. But, and this is actually interesting. So one of my high school friends, I played high school soccer with her, is a Phoenix firefighter. And she and I have talked about this. And she says, look, it's not because we don't know what's best for the snakes. It's because we have rules and regulations that we have to follow. We are not allowed to do that. We have to release it at the edge of the property. We don't want these calls. We don't want to be right, called out for snakes. Right. We want them to call Rattlesnake Solutions. So it's a matter yeah. of people knowing who to call for the benefit of themselves and for the snakes. Yeah, I should clarify. I, I wasn't really dissing firefighters there. I, yeah. I, and they have more important things to do, obviously. Exactly. We depend on them for for a lot of other things that are much more important. Uh, exactly. So there's a niche there uh, for Brian and, and uh, I guess for you too. So I guess you have a uh, relocation service or business up in your area then? Is that true? Is that correct? It is true. I started the business this past fall in October 2019. Uh, it's called Central Coast Snake Services. And I actually started it primarily because I was doing for years on the side uh, snake safety training for biologists, military personnel, ranch hands, that kind of thing. Um, anyone who comes into contact with rattlesnakes and has to safely move them. And I was doing that just ad hoc. And I decided to turn it into a business so that I could organize you know, just organize the whole thing. And then when the spring hit and COVID hit and I was home a lot and people here were home a lot in their yards, there just got to be this demand for uh, rescuing snakes from people's yards as well. So I added that. And then there was demand for, uh, you know, things like inspecting people's property for rattlesnakes. I added that. And then there was demand for the rattlesnake proof fencing, which I learned a lot from Brian Hughes about how to do that. So um, we have a much, much smaller demand for this sort of service than something in Arizona. But I think that in our small community on the California Central Coast, we've been making great strides in terms of reducing conflict between people and rattlesnakes. And I'm really proud of that. And I'm anxious to see where the business will go in the future as well. That's very interesting. And and perhaps it's a blessing that it's not you, you don't get as many calls as Brian and his crew get. Oh, it definitely <laughs> oh is. There's something, to be, there's something to be said for this being just me and my partner, Steve, and not having a, a large staff of people. It makes it manageable for me with my other job. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think it was, it's interesting uh, when you talked about uh, doing a rattlesnake safety for uh, various professional people. Um, I'm, I'm sure you, then you could probably, I'm going to guess and predict that you could tell me that there are plenty of of uh, folks that go through your training and at, at first they're like, Oh my gosh, you know, it's, it's the demon snake. Yeah, but at, by the end, they, they sort of, they're not as afraid. And some of them are probably very interested in the animals now uh, as sort of a transformation of, of being in relatively uh, close proximity to them. Absolutely. We have a, you know, outreach and training snake named buzz and he's adorable and he really seems to change people's minds. He was in a, um, a snake that we actually rescued. It was living in this guy's truck. Um, <laughs> he uh, he had raised him from a baby, and he's 22 years old, and he's just obese. And so we rescued him, and we use him now for trainings. And people just melt when they look at him because he's this like short, fat, 
snake with little jowls <laughs> around his face. Um, but as part of the training, I insist that the whichever company hires me um, allows me to do a seminar as well, where I um, talk about the lives and ha- lives and habits of rattlesnakes, so that people can learn about them. And I think that by the end of that. A lot of the people already like rattlesnakes. They're biologists, but some of them are not so sure. By the end, they definitely have renewed respect for rattlesnakes. And yes, I I like to think that sometimes they may even even like them, hopefully. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And so uh, while we're still talking about rattlesnakes, and I'm sure we could probably talk all day about rattlesnakes. uh, But recently, you were also involved in something called the Rattlesnake Beauty Pageant. And you sort of, you threw out a... uh, you threw out your hook and you got back a bunch of rattlesnake photos from all over North and uh, uh, South America and Central America. And then every day you would post a different picture of it. And on Twitter, uh, you did that on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you had you had an ulterior motive with that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I did. I mentioned earlier about how I've been thinking a lot about rattlesnake public relations and public image. And this is something that other rescue groups like, or, you know, snake education groups like Save the Snakes and Orient Society and Advocates for Snake Preservation have been thinking about for a long time. So I'm really just jumping on the bandwagon and helping any way I can. And in July, we had a World Snake Day on July 16th. So I thought, how fun would it be to kind of bookend that with a snake a day on Twitter? Now, I'm a terrible photographer, even though I like to go herping. I just, you know, I take cell phone photos and they're terrible, but I... I'm in many groups on Facebook where I see these incredible photographs being being shared by all of our colleagues and friends who like to go herping and take great in-situ photos. And so I asked them if they would be willing to let me use them. And I just got so many incredible photos. I had to pick, you know, 31 of them, although I sneaked a few more in on Twitter. And so people who are interested can can look on Twitter at hashtag rattlesnakebeautypageant. And then as I was doing it, I realized that there would be great to make this last a little bit longer and to also try to help snakes. And so I uh, have now organized a rattlesnake beauty pageant 2021 calendar with some of my favorite images, including one from Mike Pingleton. <laughs> I'm, I made the cut. You did. Awesome. I, can't remember. I think you might have like Mr. November, but I can't remember. You're, you have a, That's a nice, me. A, a nice red diamond. Yes. A nice red yeah. diamond rattlesnake that you photographed. But I got yeah. so many great photo- photographers who donated their photos for me to use. And the beauty of this is that I'm selling the calendar with 100% of the proceeds going to Advocates for Snake Preservation, who are specifically working on a lot of materials and programs right now for how to live alongside rattlesnakes in snake country. And so I chose them for that reason, that I wanted to try to try to um, help with their endeavors. They're a nonprofit organization in New Mexico. With um, They just do great work. And so I'm selling that right now. They can, people can go to the Central Coast Snake Services website, and you can look for the 2021 calendar. We're doing pre-orders, and they should be shipping in a month or two. Cool. So um, I will mention this in my intro, and I will put a link to that in our show great. notes. And so that we can, um, and usually I, I try to do follow-ups uh, on my little Facebook page for for the podcast. I try to do follow-ups with some of the more interesting things that are going on. So I'll be sure to post it there too, so we can get uh, more people interested in in that. And uh, hopefully you'll have. Well, I, I know you'll have a good response because rattlesnakes. Right? I know, and they're just incredible. <laughs> some of the photos are just incredible too. So yeah, yeah. and I, I mean the. 
the, the, they're going for twenty nine ninety nine, and a full twenty dollars of each of each of that is going to be going to advocates for snake preservation. So, um, when you're thinking about it, it makes great holiday gifts, and it's just really a way to support snake conservation while also getting this fabulous cal- calendar. Which I'm going to have them just all over my house, so I can stare at rattlesnakes all day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I can't. I can't wait. I need to go put a pre order in too. Well, you uh, get one because you're one of the photographers, so you get a oh, complimentary no, no, copy. No, no. That's that's <laughs> not how one. it works. You can buy I'm, one for a friend. <laughs> I, I'm a buy one. All right. Uh, so I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna let that pass that up. So, uh, so that's that's cool. So you have so many different interests going on here, um, in work and out of work, and and so on and so forth. What else What else are you involved in? Well, the the other main research project that I'm involved in is pretty interesting, and it has to do with endangered lizards. So maybe I'll talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I have a colleague named Mike Westfall, who is a Bureau of Land Management biologist. And a few years ago, he invited me to start working with him on his long-term established project on blunt-nosed leopard lizards, which are a federally endangered lizard species that used to live all throughout the California Central Valley but now, because it has mostly been converted into agriculture and oil fields, is really just restricted to a few small populations. So it's very, very, very critically endangered. And they're just, you know, I mean, most of your listeners may know Gambelia sila, blunt-nosed leopard lizard. They look real similar yeah. to the long-nosed leopard lizards you have in Arizona. They are just incredible animals. They're big lizards. The females get these beautiful orange spots during reproductive season. And they live the most interesting lives because they only have a three-month active season because it's so harsh. They come out in late April They just eat like crazy and reproduce. The females lay maybe two, three, maybe even four clutches of eggs, just boom, 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 boom. And then they go down to estivate in late July. So they just went down this year. And they'll stay down all summer and then into hibernation throughout the winter. So they just are active for a few short months. So they don't come out in the fall? At all? No, that some of the hatchlings and juveniles will will be out for a little bit in September, October, but the adults just stay down. And I'm just really excited about what we have done and what we are going to continue to do with them because it's really an applied conservation biology project, which is something that I haven't really been involved in. I, I've, I would consider myself a conservation biologist in terms of some of the other things we've been talking about with rattlesnakes, but I've always been studying, you know, really common rattlesnakes, rattlesnakes that don't have a lot of protections that probably aren't in need of a lot of uh, conservation management. Whereas these leopard lizards are just in big trouble. Um, and so we've done a lot of thermal ecology work where we have looked at their activity patterns, their body temperatures. We've made ma- models that are predicting how climate change will impact them. And what we're showing is that they spend a lot of time in these burrows underground and they're giant kangaroo rat burrows, which are also a federally endangered species. And so you have this delicate dance with these endangered species that are dependent on one another. And what our models are showing is that the leopard lizards are potentially going to be spending more and more and more times down in these burrows, which they already spend nine months out of the year in. <laughs> and so now our our research is shifting this coming year into what's going on inside the burrows, right? Like if you okay. think about this, and it's actually a funny story because I remember I was in my 30s when I decided to learn to go sco- to scuba dive. And I remember going mm. down my first dive and just being like a emotionally wrecked and blown away that I had spent 30 something years ignoring this entire other world under the sea that was, that was now open to me. It was just an incredible feeling. I can't describe. I love to go herping on land and now I could, you know, go herping even. Yes. I saw sea snakes. One of my first dives was incredible. Mm. 
Um, but now, anyway, the point is that now it's like, okay, well, what about underground? This world underground is so unknown. And so we have this underground camera that we can use to spy on animals underground. And even more exciting, the engineers at my university are building me a burrow penetrating robot to be able to crawl underground and spy on lizards and mammals interacting. It's going to be able to measure humidity and temperature and have a camera on it. And it's just so exciting. This is why I love wow. being a scientist. Yeah. Yeah. So there, I can go a couple ways with this, but uh, <laughs> um, right away, uh, first of all, I, it's so cool that part of what you do is you're just in, actively engaging uh, with undergrads and letting people do their thing and, and, making that work with whatever you're researching. That's pretty cool. But my little brain is sitting here buzzing because I, I've been to the habitat of these lizards and I never, I didn't see a live one. I've, I did see a DOR, unfortunately. Do they eat in the burrows? Are they, is there some sort of uh, insect intake from hanging out in the burrows? Do they hang out in, in the mouth of the burrows or? So uh, and have, if they're shoulder to shoulder with a prairie dog, yeah. how does that work? I know. Oh, my gosh. It's so exciting. So we don't know the answer to your questions, but these are some of the questions we hope to be able to answer. The leopard lizards definitely um, definitely spend a lot of time feeding above ground. The, this species eats primarily insects. There's very few lizards in its diet. Um, but when we actually put our burrow cameras down there, we see a number of beetles down underground. So I wouldn't be surprised if they were eating, but we haven't been able to capture any data on that yet. Especially when you think about through August, September, October, there's, it's very, very harsh. There's probably not a lot of insect activity that time of year, but is there stuff going on underground that we don't know about? And one of the questions we are most interested in asking, well, in answering, because we're definitely going to ask it, is what effect does um, being in the same burrow complex as mammals have? Do the mammals humidify the burrows? Um, are the mammals caching seeds down there and plant and vegetation that is maybe attracting insects or is, you know, um, harboring moisture. So these are all questions that my uh, incoming graduate student, Savannah Weaver, is hoping to um, answer. And we're just do so they, excited about it. Do they inhabit burrows without prairie dogs? Yeah, so they're actually not prairie dogs where we are. They're they're giant kangaroo rats. But no, it's the, kangaroo it's the same. Kangaroo rats, okay. Yeah, it's the same. Ecologically, it's the same sort of thing. Okay. And um, yeah, so... The giant kangaroo rats are so cool. They have these precincts, which is this mound that has a bunch of different burrows in them. Mm -hmm. And the they're solitary. So it's just usually one kangaroo rat per mound. But many of the mounds are not occupied at any given moment. However, they're occupied by other animals. So there's the little antelope ground squirrels that go in there. There's a bunch of other species of kangaroo rats that dig smaller burrows. And so okay. until we can really start, because no one has observed them underground, until we can really start doing that with this... Uh, robot, we won't know the answers to that. Like, are they preferentially choosing the ones that are occupied? I don't know. It's going to be awesome to find out. Yeah. Uh, so I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. That sounds um, interesting to me. Uh, and those those leopard lizards, they remind me of the butterfly agamas that I saw in Thailand, which were just living out in this big open field. Not if even no no vegetation to speak of, but they all had a little burrow. And they all had the little heads sticking out. And uh, if you get, try to get, take a picture of them, they would just drop right back down in the, in the burrow. So it was very difficult to, to photograph them. And I recently saw some pictures of the of these leopard lizards. Maybe it was your picture, I don't know, um, on the edge of a burrow. And it, it just struck me the, the similarities between those two species. Oh, it's totally true. We call it lizard whack-a-mole because they'll just swoop down the burrow they go. They really yeah. rely on those burrows. And that's been one of the neat things about this study is that the, just like you were alluding to right now, the habitat is so simple. 
it's desert. It's even though it, people think of the Carrizo Plain where I do research as a grassland, it's actually desert. Uh, the only grasses that are there are non-native um, invasive grasses that the giant kangaroo rats basically mow every year, and it turns into just a dirt dirt field. And there is um, kangaroo rat burrows, and that's it. One of our populations also has ephedra shrubs, which the lizards do use the shade to their advantage. That's part of our okay. research has shown that for sure. Um, but it's really these burrows that are incredibly important. They they rely on them dramatically. And so I wouldn't be surprised if there's, you know, convergent evolution of all these other iguanian lizards like the agama that you were talking about. We see it over and over and over with things like sidewinder rattlesnakes versus sidewinder vipers. We see that. So I'm sure it's the exact same sort of thing. When I first started going to Asia, which um, I've made a couple trips over there, but you can't help but compare the the critters you see to the critters back home every time. Well, this yeah. is this thing is just like a king snake or this thing is just like, you know, whatever. Or, I or like, agree. The, yep. like the lizards I just talked about. You, it's just one of those things you do. And I just kept catching myself doing the comparisons over and over every time I'd find something new. Well, that's it's doing the same thing that this does over back in my hemisphere. You know, totally agree with you. I think convergent evolution is one of the coolest things from an ecologist perspective, you know, it's yeah. being able to go to a place and whatever animal you know best, you'll see it. And then you think about like, well, what if I knew birds really well or insects? I probably would be noticing that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I know birds a little bit, not, not too much. So, but yeah. uh, not well, me. that's really cool. Um, <laughs> well, you know, you can't do everything. Plus, plus right. birds require that you look up. Although, and... <laughs> let me tell you that actually last night I had an, an encounter with a bird because a Someone gave a tourist our phone number, Central Coast Snake Services, when there was a great blue heron that was caught in a tree mm. by with with fishing line. It was dangling by its foot. Oh. And so they couldn't get a hold of anybody else on a Monday night. So we ended up going there and finding some climber friends to go up this 50 feet up into this oak tree with ropes and rescue the heron, which we did. So wow. I, maybe I do ha have some interactions with birds <laughs> to wow. speak of. Yeah. I love it. That's great. Um, and that's, yeah. that's how we do, right? We, this is what folks that are involved with living organisms do. They see no problem with doing that or pulling a tin can off a skunk's head or, <laughs> exactly. or, a, bear, or a bear's head for that matter. People are like, exactly yeah, it's right. got to be done. Yeah, I mean, she, done, so let's get she to called it. me and I said, I said, oh, I'm sorry, we just rescue snakes. And then she sounded so defeated. And I thought, well, I'm going to come and I'm going to help that heron. I'll do whatever I can <laughs> to help any of those animals. So yeah. maybe I'll maybe I'll end up being broader wildlife rescue, at least while I have time like this. Hey, call me up. I'll try. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So I guess you're working from home or do you have to go into the office or how's that working? I'm working from home. Our, our campus is mostly closed down. We start classes actually in September because we're on the quarter system, so it wouldn't be starting in August. But um, the majority, if not all of our classes, are going to be online. All of my classes are online, so I'll be working from home for the foreseeable future. I see. Okay. Well, that's good. I think that's really good because it seems rather scary. No, right I agree now. with you. Uh, I, I think it's crazy that that some people are considering going back to school. It. It sucks, by the way. It's going to suck to teach my classes online. It's not like it's going to be great, but it's going to be better than the alternative. It really is. Yeah, and I have some grand grandsons and granddaughters who um, are facing this, and you know, the parents, of course, are pulling their hair out trying to trying to figure out how this is going to work. And I think uh, there's just millions of millions and millions of people with kids from kindergarten through college who are wondering what the heck is going to happen here and how this is all going to work out. So, yeah. Definitely not a good time. Um, no. 
Okay, I would change the subject away from that because uh, uh, we could talk about that all day too, right? <laughs> so, what else have you got going on as far as projects? You say you you, you sort of support the, your undergrads' projects as well out of your yeah. lab. Definitely. I mean, all the research I do is extremely student-centered. Cal Poly is a is a known for their undergraduate research, and we also have a very strong master's program as well. So I don't have PhD students, but I don't need them. I've got great students working with me, and they lead all the projects. Um, I just help out a little bit. So um, my grad student, Nicole Gaudenti, is the one who just finished up all this blunt-nosed leopard lizard research. And she's analyzing data like crazy right now. There's another interesting project that I bet you would be interested in um, being led by one of my undergraduates, Katie Rock. And she's looking at uh, authorship and herpetology at the gender gap. So, yes. And it's been very cool because we're finishing the analysis right now. So I actually have a lot of preliminary data. And what we did was we um, actually made made a database consisting of all the publications professional publications um, on amphibians and reptiles from the past 10 years, which is, you know, hundreds of thousands of authors on those. And we wrote a computer algorithm to assign the binary sex, male or female, based on birth certificate data to those authors. And then for snakes and lizards, also, we went back 50 years. So from 1970 to 2019. And the crazy thing about that is that most papers published back in the 70s, 80s, even 90s just had the first initial. So we had to go back by hand and scrape all those first author, those first author first names or author first names, which took many, many, many months. It's a big team of students working on it. But the long story short is what we found is that currently nowadays across all groups of amphibians and reptiles, um, male authors outnumber females by about two to one. So we're seeing somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 to 35% female authors, uh, no matter what group of organism you're talking about. Now, you tend to have a little bit more women um, maybe like more closer to 35% when we're talking about tuataras, when we're talking about anurans, frogs, uh, talking about turtles. However, when we start to think about things like crocodilians, Sicilians, snakes and lizards, it's closer to 25% women. So, But the really neat thing about this, Mike, is that the data that, that we're taking back to the 70s showed that in the 70s, studies on snakes and lizards were only about 10% authored by women. So we've seen this dramatic growth in female participation in herpetology over the past 50 years. And it's continuing now. I see it when I go to conferences that there's more and more and more women. So we're looking forward to publishing a paper that's really delving deeply into this and asking other questions like, uh, we have some data in there that suggests that if there's a female leading the project, that there's more likely to be female co-authors and it just really shows the importance of collaboration and mentorship among um, women in herpetology. And this was an interest of a student of mine. So we went after it. And now I think it's going to make a really neat paper. That's cool. And you only have to scrape all that data once. Yes. And then you, you, you have it, right? So uh, other people can use that data going down the road, I, I assume. Exactly. Uh, this is um, something I'm, I'm interested in. And I'm, I'm very glad to see that there are are more women and there are also more min- minorities uh, and uh, uh, folks from all walks of life that are involved in the sciences these days. Uh, that is that has been a change since uh, when I was in my twenties and uh, when I was in school. And I'm glad to see it, and I and I like to see that continue. And it hasn't been. Uh, it's been kind of a rocky road. It's not. Uh, it's not over yet. Oh yeah, <laughs> there's there's some not. resistance and. For whatever reason, there's some resistance to that, and it, obviously, uh, on 
on this show, my goal is to uh, to be as inclusive as I can and to hear from all voices. I can't only interview so many male field herpers or photographers. I have I want to cover you know the entire spectrum of who's out there, what they're doing, uh, and I'm, I'm really glad to see the change. And I'm interested in what you just told me about because that's the data behind the change, right? Yes, it is. And some people have asked us if we have other demographic information that we could be analyzing, things like, you know, ethnicity or country of origin. And unfortunately, those data are not things that you can easily scrape from this database. I mean, even even our data on these sex ratios are honestly not the full story because we're just assigning binary sex based on birth right. certificate data. That has nothing to do with the person's gender identity or anything like that. And right. so... Um, and I, don't, and- I don't know how you could pull... You can't really pull historical data on on gender. There's, no. there's just well, nothing, right? I, well, no, you can't. No, I mean the only way to get someone's gender identity is to inter- is to ask them because that's the only way to get it. And so we, you know, we did the best that we could with the data we have, but there are limitations to it, and there's limitations to many types of demographic studies, and so it's just really a an estimate of one aspect, which is their their sex and. Um, I'm ha- I'm happy with it. I'm proud of it. Um, but it made me think of a lot more about things you could do currently with current people in the field by using surveys, which are much more powerful than our, the, the power in our data was our ability to look into the past. The power of the survey is the ability to delve into much more deeply the data of the present. Okay. So you went deep and now you're going wide. That's right. Okay. Very cool. From where I sit in the recreational field herping world, which is sort of where I'm centered, even though I have a, a really strong interest in, in the sciences, we see the same thing in field herping. Uh, it used to be some guys, but now we see people from all walks of life involved in this. And that, that's to me, that's great. And uh, like you know, anything else, it's not over yet. We're, we don't have uh, as many, many folks from uh, other, other genders and other races and other countries involved that I'd like to see. But we're definitely, we've definitely changed. We've definitely come a long way from uh, just, you know, the old boys club, so to speak. Awesome. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) So it it encourages, one of the things that I look at is um, I'm an administrator for what's called the North American Field Herping Association Mm -hmm. page, which has over 20,000 people on it. And I'm one of the guys who approves who comes into the group. And uh, that's a thankless job, by the way. Um, <laughs> but it amazes me now what we get in terms of people who want to be a member, as opposed to even five years ago. Uh, I, I get more females requesting membership than males these days. It's kind of fun because I do just a little bit of screening. And sometimes I'm curious about the people that, that want to join the group. And I see them, I can see what other groups they belong to. You know, they're they're in the um, birding groups and the uh, fishes and wild plants and prairie groups. So so there's this real outpouring of interest in just in the natural world, maybe not necessarily biology, but in the natural world. I see so many people that are so involved with other things in the real world. And I know the the numbers, if you talk to people who are bird watchers, the number of people who bird watch has just gone through the roof. So I think that's great too. So so I've been able to sit and watch this trend take place as as I, you know, approve people. And just one day it hit me, it's like, man, this is really the demographic is really changing. And I, I assume the demographic and the sciences in general is really changing. 
Yes, it is changing. The, there's a lot of data on that lately, and the demographics have been changing dramatically. Even at the level of uh, graduate students in life sciences, it's primarily women now. It's over over half women. The problem is, is we still don't see that level playing field when it comes to professional employment. We still see things like mostly male professors. We still see th- things like unequal pay for the same job. And so um, it just takes time. These things can't be magically fixed overnight. And I think that all of us have a job to play in this. You know, you're, you're doing public outreach right now with your podcast. Um, I'm doing teaching and mentoring. We all have things that we do that are important. And it's just up to us to be keeping our eyes open to be trying to provide opportunities for, for everyone and specifically trying to invite people to join us and reach out to people who, you know, may not have been brought up herping with their you know parents in the field or who may not have had a chance to go to the university and take a class with Harry Green. <laughs> right. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So what else have you got going on? I have recently become involved with some research on brown tree snakes in Guam, which are an invasive species there that has caused a lot of um, economic and ecological damage. And I was supposed to be there this past March doing a big project, but um, unfortunately... My date was right when the lockdown started. So I was, um, yeah, so I wasn't able to go. This was my major sabbatical trip. I was also supposed to be in the Bahamas studying Bahamian rock iguanas. That also got canceled. Uh, But anyway, eventually I'll, I'll be able to go back to Guam once the world opens up again. But the project involves, some people may have heard that they've been doing some studies about how to control brown tree snakes using uh, ibuprofen, excuse me, acetaminophen. By basically attaching little Tylenol to acetaminophen <laughs> to mice and then airdropping those mice with little parachutes <laughs> into the canopy I've and then they that. eat them. Yeah. And what, yeah. So anyway, this acetaminophen is toxic to the to the snakes. And the the project I would be doing would be trying to figure out the optimal dosage for poisoning the snakes. Um, this is a humane way of controlling an invasive animal so that native species on Guam can potentially thrive again in certain parts of the island. And so the idea is that by giving them either too much or too little acetaminophen, you could be missing the mark. And so I'm going there with uh, a okay. field metabolic system to look at the optimal dosage with some colleagues from the USDA. So that will So help. hopefully you'll be doing that next year? You know, we keep saying maybe this fall, maybe this winter. And so who knows at this point, I don't have any idea when uh, people are going to be able to fly around and interact again. I really don't know. I'm thinking next year. <laughs> My money's yeah. on next year. So that, that's a that's a brown tree snakes for a while there. It got a lot of media attention and decidedly so. And it was such an ecological disaster, but you don't see much in the press about it anymore, but it's still an ongoing issue. And I, I assume there's still a sizable population of those snakes there. Yeah, there is a sizable population. I haven't been there yet, and so um, I'll learn a lot more when I'm there, of course. But my my colleagues who are the who are in charge of this project, um, they have a very you know, rich research program going on over there. They have um, areas with, you know, a snake exclusion. They have like a, a certain area where they do intensive studies that um, snakes can't get in or out of, so they are able to study just that population. There are places on the island that are far too remote and kind of thick vegetation to ever get to that are full of snakes. And then there's places that they're able to keep them out. So um, it's, it's a complicated system. They're, they're not likely to be able to ever eradicate the brown tree snakes, but they're trying to be able to control them in certain spots so that some of the native birds may be able to actually nest in those particular areas. So it's just a management issue. Okay. Honestly. 
you know, I'll be interested in hearing more about that as, as time goes by, because um, you just don't see much about that issue anymore. So, yeah, I wonder um, why that is, because there's definitely a very, very big research program going over going on over there with USDA and USGS. There's many scientists hired every year to go and work on the, the brown tree snake problem. Um, but I don't know specifically why maybe you haven't heard as much in the news lately. Maybe now, maybe it's because of COVID and all the research stopped. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to say. Well, that's cool. And and so, yeah, I expect next year will be the year when people can finally get back to these projects. And uh, I know I expect to be gone a lot next year. I know, <laughs> I know, I know. It's so. funny because I, I, on the one hand, it's I have my sabbatical and both of my trips were canceled, which is disappointing. But I also, on the bright side, was still able to get out and do field work here locally in the United States on the leopard lizards and the prairie rattlesnakes, where we maintain social distancing and wore masks and so on. And that right. was a luxury. It was a true luxury because I actually had to apply to my university to have permission to do that. And we were very highly regulated. So I do feel lucky that I was able to get some work done on my sabbatical, even if it yeah. wasn't broad. Good, good. Okay, well, I, we're up against our time limit here pretty much. Uh, I want to thank you for coming on the show. It's it's great to meet you as, as we go. Great to meet you, too. <laughs> thank you so much we, for inviting me. Yeah, I mean, this is the best we can do these days in terms of meeting people. So uh, I'm really glad to talk to you, and uh, hopefully we can talk again sometime and get an update on your projects. Uh, and it's very interesting. Of course, everybody loves rattlesnakes, and the leopard lizard thing is also uh, fascinating. You know, I think, sure, a lot of the people that listen to these um, podcasts are just as interested in, in as I am in the uh, the interplay between giant kangaroo rats and uh, leopard lizards. So uh, I'm going to keep my ear to the ground on that one. And, of course, uh, good luck going forward with the, the calendar and Thank all you that much. work. I really appreciate what you're doing there. So, yeah, any, thank you. Any, any final words before we take off? Um, I would just say that people can... Uh, follow me on Twitter um, and Instagram at, at Snakey Mama. <laughs> and uh, they can also follow my uh, business at, at Coast Snake. And I'm very active on social media, especially Twitter. And I hope to be able to make some new connections with your listeners. So thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'll have to post on Twitter uh, when the podcast drops. I'll post something, too. So you can I'll let you know. So you can post it on Twitter, too. Sounds so, good. Thanks again. And uh, we'll talk to you again sometime. Sounds great. Happy herping, everyone. That's it for episode 12. I want to thank Emily Taylor for coming on the show. I really enjoyed talking with you, and you have so many cool projects going on, and you really got my brain cranking during that interview. And folks, you can follow Dr. Taylor on Facebook, and she is Snaky Mama on Twitter and Instagram. So please see the show notes for more details about that and for links to her Rattlesnake Calendar Project. And I am pretty sure we are all going to need calendars again next year, and you really should have a good one with rattlesnakes. A big end-of-the-show shout-out to all the folks who sent emails and comments and suggestions. Please keep them coming. Your feedback and support are much appreciated. And just a couple things before I go. You can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at SoMuchPingle.com. And you can join the So Much Pingle Facebook group. You can also email me directly at SoMuchPingle at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And in the meantime, 
Please take good care of yourselves and don't forget to hurt better.